Let's give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning, and we acknowledge your supremacy and your sovereignty over all things. And Lord, we are a part of that creation, and we thank you for the privilege of being created in your image. And Lord, you know we're also humbled and broken and, uh, and desperate for you because We've marred that image because of our sin. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would remind each and every heart that's here of the new creation that you died to bring about. And I pray, Lord, that you would change us again from glory to glory to ever-increasing glory as we do our best by your help to look full on in the face of Christ and see him for who he is. So please transform us by your word and by your spirit. Let this time together be profitable and we give it to you in Christ's name I pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Good morning. God's good. Amen. Uh, got your Bibles? Grab them. Go to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Uh, the church at Ephesus. Last week, uh, we had an introduction to the Jesus who was going to speak to these churches eyes like fire, face like the sun, the, the, the sun, the sun uh, shining in all of its strength. And today he. We hear from him as we hear this, this first letter that he writes through the Apostle John to the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Would you just pray with me one more time? Father, thanks again for today. Please open the eyes of our heart that we might see wonderful things from your word. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Um, we live in a day when you can pretty much get whatever you want and you can get it however you want it. Um, I think Burger King says it best, your way right away at Burger King now. The same thing uh, has become true, unfortunately, when it comes to getting what you want in a church. Um, I, I hear the questions, I, I, to be fair, I've, I've asked these same questions. I don't think any of us is exempt from this. But you hear people say, well, that's not what I want in a church. Well, that's not what my wife wants in a church. That's not what my husband wants. That's not really what we want. That's not what my kids want in a church. Um, pastors and leaders ask, what do the people want? What do the older saints want? What do the younger saints want? What do the youth want? 
What does the culture want? But we never seem to ask what Jesus wants. And yet that is precisely what we're, what we're given in very straightforward language in these letters to the seven churches. It's what Jesus wants for his church. And it's tragically ironic that nobody asks this question, is it not? Because it's his bride. It's his body, it's his family. He, he made the church what it is at the price of his own blood. As we sang about earlier, the church of Christ was born and the spirit lit the flame. Why? Because the blood had been shed. The precious blood of Christ. And he comes in these seven letters, and we'll see it here this morning, and he, he, he comes to his church, and uh, though we do not acknowledge it, <laughs> oh, Lord, help us. Though we do not acknowledge it, um, because we think that it's somehow ours. <laughs> he, he doesn't come, but he doesn't come with a questionnaire. He doesn't come to take a survey. He doesn't come to the church to figure out what the felt needs are. He comes and he tells us what he wants. He tells us in very straightforward language what he likes and what he does not like. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, all of these, these letters, these short letters, pretty much follow the same type of outline. And so this will be somewhat, um, uh, there's a consistency to it, I guess, uh, over the next couple weeks as we, as we spend a week looking at each one of these letters to the seven churches. Uh, the outline kind of goes like this. Jesus follows kind of the same pattern in addressing each one of these churches. There's a characteristic of Jesus that's given, and then there's a commendation or a compliment to the church, and there, then there is a correction, and then there's a command, and then there's a commitment. So characteristic, commendation, correction, command, commitment um, to each one of the churches that follows this, this same uh, general pattern. And so let's look at here um, in chapter 2, verse 1, and again, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, and by that I just mean that like Mercy Hill is your home church, you're not just visiting with us. Please, folks, let's hear what Jesus wants in a church. He says, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, just a little note on this, because each one of the letters starts this way. It's weird that he's writing to an angel. The word for angel here, um, it can also be translated messenger. Uh, it's, it, it, the name angel literally means messenger. Um, it's used of that of John the Baptist and some other people that Jesus sent out before him uh, in, the, in the Gospels. And so there's some debate about what exactly this means, if he's just speaking of kind of like a, one of the pastors or leaders of these churches that he's writing to, just meaning the messenger of the church. But there's also some that make the case like it is, by using the word angel here, he is somehow calling attention to the fact of everything that's going to come later on in this book has to do from the heavenly perspective. And he's reminding the church early on that where the battle actually lies is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers unseen in the heavenly realms. But either way, he says to the angel or to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, right, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now we saw this picture of Jesus last week, um, and this is just a little bit of it. You see him 
holding the seven stars, which are the seven churches. Um, stars, I mean, I think just our sun is burning at like what, like 100,000 degrees Fahrenheit just on the surface, more than that. At, at its core, Jesus here is holding the stars, which are the churches in his hand. He has all rule, power, and authority, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And here he's specifically addressing the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, I, I, I just love it. Um, I think I love it just because we have so much information about it in the New Testament. But man, I want, I want to be a part of a church like Ephesus was. Um, Ephesus saw some awesome things happen. Ephesus, first of all, if I can just get that map up there on the screen real quick, Mervin, just to give you a little bit of an idea, um, is Ephesus was kind of this chief port city there. Uh, Patmos is just that little rock a little bit out into the Aegean Sea um, that John is writing from and where he's having this vision. Ephesus was kind of the chief out of all these cities. It was also probably the second most important city in the Roman Empire, apart from Rome itself. Um, it was an amazing place. And many of you guys know, and I promise not to do this like throughout, throughout the whole series, is like talk about my trip over there in September and, um, and show you, you know, pictures that you may not want to see. Um, I don't want to be that guy. Uh, but... Uh, but Ephesus was truly beautiful. Like just, just a little thing that I can't quite get over, it's just a natural thing, is when we were over there, the streets, now get this, the streets were made of marble. I mean, we put marble on our countertops, right? And it's fairly expensive. The streets were made of marble. So it was just absolutely, it was absolutely just a glorious place um, just physically and aesthetically back in the day. Not only was it just a, a chief city, um, but they also had unbelievable leaders in Ephesus. The apostle Paul was there for a time. He taught every day in the hall of Tyrannus for two years. Um, Priscilla and Aquila were there. Apollos was there. Paul then later on leaves Timothy there, to whom the letters of First and Second Timothy are written about. Later on, the apostle John himself was one of the elders in the church in Ephesus. So they just had unbelievable leaders. It was an unbelievable city. If you can imagine just hearing the Apostle John, or I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul lecture every day. Um, in fact, if I can just show you one more, one more picture here quick of this place uh, when we were over there. It's called uh, the Celsus Library um, in Ephesus. And uh, there's some people that think that this was the Hall of Tyrannus, um, but it probably wasn't. In Acts chapter 19, um, it talks about how Paul would go in and reason with the Jews in the synagogue, and then it says they, they resisted him, and so he withdrew from them. This is Acts 19.9. And he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the Hall of Tyrannus, and it says this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. But he was in this place, like in this town center, Again, it probably wasn't this exact place, um, but probably somewhere nearby. And the Apostle Paul is lecturing every day. If you can imagine what that would have been like to have the Apostle Paul lecturing every single day in your church, the elders, whoever they were in uh, Ephesus. We find out later on in Acts chapter 20 that, that Paul knew them very personally. He addressed them personally and had personally um, been taught by him. You saw unbelievable revival in Ephesus. Again, in Acts chapter 19, again, we just have so much information on the church in Ephesus, um, in Acts chapter 19, verse 11, it says that God was doing, to get this, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So miracles are extraordinary. But it says that he was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that 
even handkerchiefs and aprons that, he had, that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Um, and so you have, again, Paul does miracles a lot of the places where he goes, but you have extraordinary miracles happening in Ephesus. You see demons coming out even just by Paul having touched a handkerchief and then taking it to them. There's this other great story of the seven sons of Sceva uh, that, that he goes into in Acts chapter 19 as well as that they see Paul casting out these demons and these seven sons of Sceva who were like Jewish itinerant exorcists, which I guess was a thing back then. They would travel around. and So they started to do this and they tried to cast out the demons by, by saying, in the name of the Jesus who Paul preaches, I adjure you to come out of them. And it's just one of the greatest little short stories that you'll find anywhere in the scriptures. The evil spirit answers them and he goes, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? <laughs> and the man in whom was the evil spirit, it says, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house, get this, naked and wounded. I don't know if this is where the phrase, that guy got the pants beat off of him, comes from, but it would be fitting uh, if it was, because the demon literally jumps on them. And then it says, that, it says that all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, heard these things. Not only this, but there were um, many uh, pagan temples and false gods, which were all over the place over there when we went over there in September. Um, still a lot of those temples still, still standing, though in ruins. Um, but many people, it says, you know, again in Acts chapter 19, verse 18, were bringing out and divulging their practices, their false arts. It says, those who practice magic arts brought their books and together burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found that the value came to 50,000 pieces of silver, which translated is just a boatload of money. Okay? So you've got revival happening in Ephesus. Not only that, you have riots happening in Ephesus. A little bit later in Acts chapter 19, again early on, it's, it's everybody, the, it literally changes the entire social and economic climate of the city <laughs> because these people are moving away from buying little fake statues to this little demon god Diana and they're coming to Jesus Christ. The people who made the little statues are losing money and they're going out of business. And it says that they drug some of Paul's friends into the theater and they're, you know, causing this riot and wanting them to be kicked out of town. This is all things that were happening in the city of Ephesus. And not only do you have all that happening, but then you have the good things that Jesus talks about here in the text in verses 2 and 3. Look at this. <clears throat> Jesus says to them, again, in regards to what pleases him, what does he like, what does he not like, here's some things that he likes. He says to them, I know your works your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. There are false teachers, there is false teaching, there is false doctrine floating around in the world just then, just like there is now. But the church of Ephesus is not having any of it. 
And they don't just put up with it for, and they don't just resist it for a while, but they continue to resist it. They are patiently enduring. They, they bear up underneath it. Somebody says they're an apostle and they're not really an apostle. They test them and they find out whether they're false. They're not going to let any wolves in among them. He goes on in verse three. He says, I know that you are enduring patiently. He says it again. And you are bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So it's one thing to resist. It's one thing to stand and to fight for the truth. It's another thing to stand and fight for the truth again and again and again and to not give up. This is what the church of Ephesus is doing. They've had these great leaders. They've had revival. They've seen riots because of the gospel and they're not giving in to false doctrine. And yet Jesus says, verse four, but I have this against you. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And he goes on, verse five. He says, remember therefore, it's a very sober warning. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And get this, if not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now again, this, is, this doesn't need a whole lot of interpretation, but just so that we're clear. When he says, remove your lampstand from its place, we saw Jesus last week. He stands in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And, and the lampstand, again, don't, don't think like a light like we've got in here. It was a candle, all right? And Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is the fire that burns inside the church. We are to be the what? The light of the world. We are to be witnesses for him. And Jesus is amongst them. And yet this church, despite such unbelievable godly leadership, despite past revival and riots for the gospel, despite wonderful doctrinal fidelity and biblical accuracy, all that good, Jesus says, you better start loving like you used to, otherwise I'm gonna take away your witness. So this is of the utmost importance the way a church loves, and we'll talk here in just a little bit about what that means, is a really, really, really big deal. You guys ever listen to PTI? Pardon the interruption on ESPN. Anybody, sports fans? Just a few, okay. I listen to PTI podcasts almost every night as I'm falling to sleep. I, for some reason, it helps me fall asleep. I kind of like sports, but then I, I must not that much because I fall asleep to it. But anyway, um, they have this little segment that they'll do on PTI called Big Deal, Little Deal, or No Deal at All. So it's just this little, short little few minute segment out of the whole show. And, um, and what the, you know, it's like, I don't know, LeBron James injured his ankle and he's gonna miss the next five games. Is that a big deal, little deal, or no deal at all? And these two guys argue back and, back and forth whether or not it's a big deal, little deal, or no deal at all. In regards to losing your first love, church, big deal, little deal, or no deal at all? Big deal. Big deal. Really big deal. Now, please notice that being doctrinally accurate and biblically orthodox is a good thing. He doesn't say that they should stop doing that in order to become loving. What he's saying is you need to keep doing that. You need to keep fighting against those who call themselves apostles and against this false teaching, but you also need to return to your first love. So many times we, we think that it's a trade-off. Should a church be strong in the truth or should we be loving? That's a false dichotomy. We need to do both. You see very clearly in the text, do you not? Jesus wants both for his church. 
This idea here of, of abandoning your first love, leaving your first love, let me just state it, okay, kind of as succinctly as I can, and let, let, then let me go to the text and some other scriptures to try to prove to you that this is what I believe he's talking about. When he talks about leaving your first love, it's interesting. As you read commentaries on this, everybody is all over the, they either fall into one or two camps and they're both very adamant that they're right, but neither one of them really does a great job of saying why they think they're right. Um, And it's either you fall into the camp of what he's talking about here in regards to leaving your first love is that he's talking about love for Christ. That's what some people think. Or some people think that he's talking about their love for one another, okay? And again, I think it's, it's a, an example of how we always fall into these false dichotomies within the church. Um, those two things are really kind of one and the same thing. Okay, Jesus said, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. When, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, but the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In John chapter 13, Jesus said this. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Now get this. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So here's what I think Jesus is saying when he says that they have abandoned or left their first love. Losing your first love means that Christ's love for you no longer compels you to share joyfully his love with others. Losing your first love means that Christ's love for you no longer compels you to joyfully share his love with others. The two go together. Love for Jesus Christ and love for people and joyfully sharing that love always goes together. This idea of abandoning here, it's the word for those of you uh, that were here, I don't know, about a month ago or so, we were talking about a few weeks ago about how disciples forgive. If you remember, the primary word for forgiveness used in the, in the New Testament is this Greek word, aphiomai. If you guys remember, I did this little illustration where I mean, I was just picking up a pencil and I just kept letting go of it and dropping it, because that's what forgiveness means. It means just to let it go. It's the same word here. Now get this, at, at some point along the way, it's the, it's the word for abandon, I'm sorry, verse four. It's the same word. At some point, they believe the lie that being right, being doctrinally accurate, was enough, and that it was okay to just let go of their love. And Jesus comes with some very straightforward language, and he says, not my church. Not my church. My church is going to be marked by love, and by this, all people are going to know that you are my disciples. If I could just put it in just kind of layman's terms, is here's, here's what the church in Ephesus had become. And I think we've all met this church. Maybe some of us have been a part of this church in the past, and I pray, Mercy Hill, that we don't become this church. Is this was a church that you knew what they were against, but you didn't know what they were for. Have you seen that? That's what the church in Ephesus had become. You knew what they were against, but you no longer knew what they were for. And what they should have been for is passionate love for Jesus Christ 
and for the world that he died to save. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen carefully. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll start in verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. I think the NIV says compels us. I think the NASB says constrains us. But the, but the idea here is that love is the motivating factor. He says the love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He goes on a few verses later. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God was making his appeal through us, we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, the love of Christ was still driving Paul. He not lost his first love. It was compelling him, constraining him, controlling him to joyfully share the love that he was experiencing with others. This is what it means to let the love of God go. That yes, we're still doctrinally accurate and we're still fighting, fighting false apostles and fighting false teaching and this is what we're against. But church, don't forget what it's all about, who it's for. It's for Jesus Christ, what he has done for us. And if you, some of those verses that I read earlier from, from Acts chapter 19, again, just, just briefly, as Paul was lecturing every day in the hall of Tyrannus, it says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, which is a, a massive area around them, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. When revival's breaking out and Paul's healing people just with handkerchiefs, it says this became known to all the residents of, of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. When people were coming out and selling and bur or, I'm sorry, burning their magic scrolls and their false gods, it says so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There is no such thing as a church that is passionately in love with Jesus that is not also passionate about sharing that love with the world around them. And so you can say that you're in love with Jesus all you want. But if it doesn't just ooze out of you, then guess what? You're not actually in love with him. This is the word of the Lord. Do you see where I'm getting this from? I'm not trying to make this up. This is what Jesus wants for his church. There's a, I think, a very applicable parallel passage somewhat in Jeremiah chapter 2. And this is under the Old Covenant, obviously, and God is speaking to Israel, his chosen people, under that covenant. And he says through the prophet Jeremiah, now many years later after he delivered them from Exodus, says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, listen to this, he says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. Why were they holy? Because they were just trusting in him. They were his people that he purchased. 
And they didn't know where they were going. They're like, all right, we'll follow you. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. The, the point being here that I want to point out is that, like, he says, remember the devotion of your youth. Of your youth. You know, I, uh, I have the privilege of being able to do several weddings every year. I've kind of put a cap on it just because it seems like I could be doing weddings every week. Um, so I have a quota and then we pass them on to Matt Rao or one of the interns or somebody else on staff or whatever. But I do several weddings every year. And the devotion of youth, um, there's a lot of good in it. I have seen ladies or young wives stand at the altar and they kind of like flutter their little eyeballs, their little eyelashes. And I've seen that. And, if I'm not, and then I've seen several years later where the same women roll their eyes. I've seen husbands who are at their wife, their bride-to-be, or their, you know, their young bride. Husbands who are at their wife's every beck and call. But now just kind of grunt or sigh when their wife calls. Now here's the thing. Do we chuckle at that? Absolutely, yeah. It's kind of true to life, but there's another part of it that should really make us sober. Because I think the exact same thing happens in our relationship with Christ. And dear friends, it's not because he's done something that's offended us. It's not because he's done something that's wrong. It's because somewhere along the way, we've just let go of our first love. And we've fallen in love with other things. And Jesus says here, again, not only the correction, but the command how to get back. He says, here's what I want you to do. Verse 5. He says, you need to remember. Remember from where you've fallen. Jeremiah 2. I remember the devotion of your youth. How you followed me and your love as a bride. He says, remember, repent, and then if you will, respond. It says, remember from where you've fallen, repent. Speaking of true heart attitude, and you're like, can God really command us to feel things at a heart level? Absolutely he can. He doesn't want a bunch of play actors. He doesn't want a bunch of hypocrites who are just wearing a mask and playing a part. He wants real devotion. He wants real love. And see, we always, this is, there's a lot that could be said here. We don't have time for it, but on true repentance. Repentance isn't just not doing the bad thing and instead doing the right thing. It's not just that. Repentance has to happen on the heart level, folks. Otherwise, we just become empty shells and performers. Fighting the good fight of faith doesn't just mean taking the next hill that Jesus commands us to take. It means staying in love with him as you do it. And the way you stay in love with him, listen, 
is remembering how he has loved you. We want our doctrine to be right. We want to endure against evil. We want to not grow weary for his name's sake. But we don't just want to be right. We want revival. We don't just want to be accurate. We want some riots because of the gospel. Amen? We want to make a difference in this world that the world, the region, the Asia around us would hear the word of the Lord, not because we're sharing it out of duty, but because we're sharing it out of delight, out of love. Passionate love for him. Church, do you remember when you were in love with Jesus? I bet you knew a lot less than you know now. And hear me, it's not, we do, again, we don't trade truth for love, but I'm saying, have you let go of that? The word of the Lord to us this morning is crystal clear. It's not okay. We need to repent. And if I could just stop for a second and for the eight of you guys that are getting baptized today, like if I literally, if I could just tell you one thing, and if it was the only thing I was ever going to tell you about the rest of your life and your commitment as a disciple of Jesus Christ and going forward with him, it's this. Stay in love with Jesus. Stay in love with Jesus. And how do you do that? By preaching the gospel to yourself day by day and remembering how much he loves you. He, he goes on here. <clears throat> he says to turn, repent, do the things you've done, at, do the things you did at first. He comes back around verse six. It's, I won't talk a lot about the Nicolaitans because they're actually mentioned in another one of the letters. It's kind of funny though. I was talking with the, with the, interns, about the, the interns about this on Friday. It's just, verse six has just kind of made me chuckle all week because he gives this dire warning and he's like, hey, you better repent or I'm going to come and literally remove your church from its place. Like, I'm gonna close the doors. You're not gonna be a witness anymore if you don't have love. And then verse six is like, yet you also have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So good job. And then he kind of like goes, goes on again. Anyway, We'll talk more about the Nicolaitans in weeks to come. But verse seven, he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I, I, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on that phrase either because it appears in all the letters and we'll talk about it in the weeks to come. But it's, it, it goes back to the Old Testament prophets and this is the way they would speak to a people who had initially resisted the word of God and were becoming hard-hearted. They would begin to speak in metaphor and in parable and with powerful apocalyptic imagery and then they would, then they would say, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Do you hear, do you hear, do you hear? Is this your heart that's being described in the passage? And then he says this. He always gives, again, a commitment or a promise. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This idea of the tree of life, very quickly, and we'll wrap up here, and we'll baptize some folks. But the tree of life, you see it in Genesis chapter 2, you see it in Genesis chapter three. The first command is actually to eat of any tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they could have eaten of any tree, even the tree of life. They chose not to, Genesis chapter three, they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, everything breaks apart. At the end of Genesis chapter three, after God has stated judgment on the man, the woman, the serpent, God says, 
Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he sends an angel with a giant flaming sword to guard it so they could not eat of it. Why did he do that? Because he did not want them to take of the tree and eat of it and live forever in a fallen state. Even his judgments are merciful. He had another plan. There was a plan to eat of a different tree. And so you see this idea in the very beginning. You also see the idea here in Revelation chapter 2. If you look at the very last chapter of the book of Revelation, every one of the commitments or the promises that Jesus gives to the church at the end of every one of the letters, those exact same promises are found in the new heavens and the new earth at the end of Revelation uh, in Revelation 21 and 22. In Revelation 22, listen to this. It says, Then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, listen, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And then listen, the leaves of the tree, the leaves of the tree of life, were for the healing of the nations were for the healing of the nations. Here's, here's what Jesus is doing with these promises or these commitments at the, every one of the letters. He says, listen, he gives, them, he gives them correction, he gives them a commandment to follow, and then he holds out this commitment, this promise of eternal life, the hope that is to come in heaven. Dear friend, Christian, this is how we live the Christian life. Through God's great and precious promises, we look at them, we gain hope for the moment to give us strength right now when we're lacking it, and then we obey him with the strength that we get from that hope, and we persevere in what he has called us to do. And Christ holds out this promise that there is another tree that we're going to be able to eat from someday that is going to heal us, going to heal us of our loveless hearts. Do you ever get tired of your loveless heart? Eric Miller gets sick and tired of his loveless heart. Some days I love Jesus and it's just like I feel like I'm going to explode, like I'm just going to burst into flames or spontaneously combust or something. Other, other days I wake up and I don't feel anything. Now again, it's not just about feelings. Love is more than a feeling. But the point is, is that I'm broken. You're broken. And on those days when I don't feel like loving him, sometimes I get into the word and sometimes I stir myself up. But if I'm being really honest, other times I don't. Other times I meander throughout my day and I guarantee that I bump into people all the time that need Jesus, that need to hear the gospel, that need the light of witness that Christ has called me to be. But I don't do it. Why? Because, because my heart is, is broken. I'm, I'm not totally full. But there's coming a day Jesus promises me and he promises you. And there's going to be a day when we're going to eat of this, this tree of life. And we're going to be healed of our loveless hearts. Is that not awesome? Well, we're not going to stand and, and we're not going to sing and, and I'm not going to say amen and then Alan's going to shout somewhere from the back. What did you say, Alan? What did you say? Like that deserves a hearty amen or something like that? I heard you down there. And, th and this is our heart. Yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah. It's like this halfway. Why? Because our hearts are so stinking fickle. We, one day we love him. One day we don't. One moment we love him. One moment we don't. But there's coming a day when Jesus promises if we'll just look to hope, get hope from the future and try to turn and return to the love of our youth. He's saying one day you're going to be completely healed of this. 
don't know about you, but the longer I go, the more I long for that. Because it's a lack of love for Christ that causes me to not love my family well. It's a lack of love for Christ at times that causes me to not love the church well. It's a lack of love for Christ that causes me not to love the world and the lost well. Yet Jesus is so patient, and he's so good, and he's so kind, and he continues to persevere with us. Um, there's a lot that could be said here about the tree of life. I know i got to close, but I... There's a... You know, Rowan's, Rowan's uh, car lately has been this engine... I'm not a mechanic, but I guess this is what happens. There's an engine coil that goes bad on it, and it keeps breaking, the same one, so it's under warranty, we keep taking it back. Anyway, this engine coil keeps going bad on it, and then it just kind of spitters and sputs. And it just goes, and it just, and it goes, but it doesn't go the way it's supposed to. That's, that's how my heart feels at times. But there's a tree that we're going to eat from someday that's going to heal us. Um, in regards to this tree of life, too, um, I mentioned earlier another tree that we can eat from now. And you guys know what that tree is. It's the tree that was on Calvary. The tree that the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus hung on that tree. And again, this is, I, I wish I'd, I maybe shouldn't wander into this, but I'm going to, and then we're going to end. So you do with it what you want. Um, but there's a lot that could be said about the tree of life. Just listen carefully for just a second. I'll try to explain it as succinctly as I can. The tree of life that I think we see in Revelation chapter 22 that is over this river and is for the healing of the nations is the same tree of the cross that Jesus hung on. Let me explain it this way. Here in the book of Revelation, you see a lot of this, okay? Jesus came once and he was born in a manger. He was a meek and mild Galilean peasant crucified in some ways in weakness as the lamb that was slain. But here we see Jesus risen, face shining like the sun. Now hear me, it's not two different Jesuses, right? It's the same Jesus. In the same way, I think the point here is, it's the same tree. The tree that looks beautiful and is described in wonderful language, it's the same tree that we don't like to look at so much now. The tree where Jesus hung, he was crucified. His blood was poured out for us. And everybody who simply looks to him will be saved. If you're getting baptized, you can get up and go to the back and get ready. Like I showed you this morning. Um, as they get up and go, just to remind the rest of us um, of the importance of always looking to that tree. Always looking to the cross. It was at the cross that God showed the world how much he loved us. And so when we take our eyes off the cross that we forget how much he loves us and therefore we begin to sputter and spit in our love for him. Very specifically and very kind of pointedly, uh, most, we're baptizing eight folks this morning. Um, 
I think the oldest one is 27. The next oldest one is 24. After that, they're all quite young. We got a couple 13-year-olds, maybe a 14-year-old, 10-year-old, something like that. And for those of you that are just older than that, let me just say that I hope that we could make it our commitment in Christ to pass on to the next generation who isn't the future of the church, but who is the church now just as much as we are. But that we would pass on to them not just doctrinal orthodoxy and biblical accuracy, but that we would pass on to them passionate love for Jesus Christ. Amen? I, church, it's a real ditch that we can fall into. I've shared this before, and I don't mean this to be derogatory towards anybody. I really don't. But growing up where I grew up at church, like I, I think to this day I would probably agree with most of their doctrinal statement. But just growing up, it's, it's so much more than what's taught, it's what's caught. And what was part of what was caught for me was, yeah, some good truth and things that I would still say a hearty amen to. But what was also caught is that really, apart from my mom, I never saw anybody just talk about Jesus. And talk about him like they knew him. And talk about him like they loved him. And I pray that that would not be true of us. Amen? So Father, thanks for today. Uh, We love you. And Lord, we love you only because you first loved us. Truly. Lord, I pray for those that are going to get baptized here in a few minutes. I pray that, Lord, we know that the work has already been done. That this water does not save them, but that it is your shed blood and the Holy Spirit that has saved them and sealed them until the day of redemption. But Lord, I do pray for them (laughs) as they come up out of that water that they would be reminded and that we all who are watching would be reminded of all that you did for us. You've washed our sins away. That we've died with you and we've been raised with you. We've been made new. And that your desire is to saturate us day by day and moment by moment with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you command us to do stuff like this so that we get it. To give us a picture. Not just abstract truth, but to give us a picture of all that you have done for us. Help us to get it, Lord. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.